Welcome to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast with your host, Brad Johnson. Brad's the VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel, the largest independent insurance brokerage company in the U.S. He's also a regular contributor to Investment News, The Wall Street Journal, and other industry publications. Hey guys, this episode's brought to you by BombBomb.com. You may have never heard of them, but here's what they do. In fact, I've been using them in my business for well over a year, couldn't survive without them. So they take delivering a video in your clients or prospects inbox and they make it super seamless and easy. In the past, if I wanted to shoot a video, share an idea, concept with my clients, I'd have to go to YouTube, upload it, copy and paste a picture in my email, link it. It was just a ton of work. Therefore, I just flat out didn't do it. Now what BombBomb does, it makes it easy. In fact, I'm doing this video right now on their service. Once I'm done, I will hit save, it will upload seamlessly on their website. Then I just pull up my clients or prospects that I want to send it out to. I select the list. I type a subject line, put a little something in the body of the email, hit send. It's in my clients and prospects inboxes within a matter of minutes. Even better, think about your inbox. It's crazy, right? It's chaos trying to keep up with that thing. Well, imagine if now your prospects or clients, they see your smiling face. They just see a play button. They hit it. They can now listen and watch whatever ideas you have to share with them in real time as far as face-to-face -face interaction as far as they're concerned, most importantly, on their calendar, not on yours, and it's not all the work of having to read an email that's three pages long. So guess what? It just flat out doesn't get read. So here's what to do if you want to check out this service. My buddy Connor over at BombBomb, he's put together a special offer for you guys. So it's BombBomb as in it blows up, bombbomb.com forward slash Brad. Go out there for a two-week free trial to check it out. He's put that together for all the Elite Advisor Blueprint listeners. And by the way, they put their money where their mouth is. So if you don't like the service, after the two weeks, you sign up, you pay for it. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee as well. So once again, bombbomb.com forward slash Brad. Go check the service out. I guarantee you'll love it. Thanks for joining. My name is Brad Johnson. I'm the VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel. In each episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint podcast, it's my goal to distill the best ideas and advice from top thought leaders and apply it to the world of independent financial advising. If you happen to be a sports fan, this show is going to be a lot of fun for you. I have the privilege of chatting with nine-time New York Times bestselling author, Don Yeager. Not only has Don co-authored books with the likes of Walter Payton, John Wooden, and Work Done, he spent over a decade as an associate editor at Sports Illustrated and had the opportunity to rub elbows with legends from every sport imaginable. After re-listening to the show to grab some highlights for you guys, this definitely ranks as one of my favorite conversations I've ever done on the show, as I was literally scribbling notes that I'd missed during the live recording. Here are a few of the highlights Don and I cover. Right out of the gates, Don shares an incredible story about his time with legendary UCLA coach John Wooden. For those of you unfamiliar, Coach Wooden won a record seven NCAA basketball championships in a row. Still a record today and an unheard of 10 over a 12-year span. I won't spoil it, but so many business and life lessons from Don's time spent with Coach Wooden. We get into stories from Don's time with Michael Jordan, Walter Payton, Mike Krzyzewski, to name just a few. And what I love is that these aren't just old war stories from Don's time at SI. He talks about lessons learned from these greats 
and how you can apply them to your business and use them to better lead your team. Finally, I'd be doing all of you a disservice if I didn't take some time to ask a nine-time New York Times bestseller about writing. Don shares all of his secrets here, how he promotes his books, his writing process, how he leverages his network, just a ton of incredible tips for you advisors out there who have both written a book or have dreamed about becoming an author. One last thing. During our conversation, Don made a generous offer to share an actual outline he's used to write one of his best-selling books to get you would-be authors started. As a thank you to all of you Blueprint listeners, we've made it super easy to download at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash outline. You can get the outline along with show notes that include links to all the resources, books, and everything else we cover there. As always, thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with Don Yeager. Welcome everyone to the Elite Advisor Blueprint podcast. I have a special guest, uh, Don Yeager eight-time best-selling. Is it is still eight, Don? New York it's, Times bestseller? Have you added any since the last it's time? Nine, it's nine, but who's counting? It's nine now? It so I've nine. got to update my bio information on you. Awesome. Yeah. So congratulations. You added, what was the most recent one you added? It's about Thomas Jefferson and, the, and, the, and his battle with the Muslim pirates of North Africa. Wow. Yeah. I've, cool. I've, I've ventured into a couple of history books that have done very well. Awesome. So you have such a diverse background. It's awesome to talk about. So you're eight time New York or nine time New York times bestselling author. Uh, you're an executive coach. You, you help businesses with their team culture. You are also the longtime associate editor of sports illustrated as well. Yeah. Pretty crazy. How, how long did you do? How long was, was sports illustrated running for? 12 years. That was, uh, years. yeah, it was 12 years. And, uh, uh, ended up, it was one of those things where you're on the road all the time. So you, uh, Ultimately, when they offered an early retirement package a few years ago, I, I jumped on it for the opportunity to spend more time at home. Awesome. Yeah, because yeah. you've got some little ones at home as well, don't I you? I do. I have a seven-year-old and a six-year-old. Hard to believe. Yeah. I, I, I feel you there. Six, yeah. six, almost five and six months old. So we decided to hit the reset button and start over. Oh, man, dude, I pray for you. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, all right. So I know we've got about an hour here today. So with every all of your amazing content, everything I, I've I've had the pleasure of hearing you speak a couple times. Um, I just want to get straight to it here. So, for all the listeners, you're in for a treat today. Don is the man. So, the first thing that we have to hit right off the bat is with obviously 12 years at Sports Illustrated. Uh, you've had the opportunity to write books with Walter Payton, John Wooden. Warwick Dunn. Those are just off the top of my head. I know there's a lot more than that. Uh, what is the coolest sports experience you've ever had in your life? <laughs> well, uh, I have to tell you, a few years ago, uh, Michael Jordan does an old man basketball camp where he brings 100 old guys uh, who love the game, who love to play uh, to Las Vegas, and you play uh, against each other for several days. It's, it's a bunch of guys that don't belong on a court together anymore, still throwing elbows at each other. Um, and, uh, but on, on the third day of that event, he actually pulls 20 of us out off the court and he says, today, the 20 of you get to go one-on-one -on -one with the greatest player of all time, uh, which is pretty impressive, right? You know, that you can actually call yourself that and have nobody argue with you. Pretty awesome. Wow. So, uh, I happen to be one of the 20 guys and Jordan's assistant steps in and says, yeah, the rules are really simple. See, the deal is that today you're going to play a game to one the first guy to score wins between you and Michael. Uh, and oh, by the way, Michael's going to start with the ball, 
right? So the odds of you of you scoring are real low, but uh, she doesn't say that. You, she doesn't have to. Uh, Jordan steps in and says, by the way, while you're thinking about what you're going to do when you get your chance in the court, realize that I've been doing this for nine years, and, and in nine years, five guys have ever scored on me, and today there won't be a sixth. So he's totally in your head, right? Uh, well, the guy, too, in front of me, he went out to guard Jordan. He actually went out through his elbow in Jordan's chest, uh, and uh, and Jordan decided to, to make sure he understood what that meant. He, he ball swiped him, knocked his arm away. The guy actually ends up falling on his backside. Jordan takes two dribbles, dunks it ferociously, pulls the ball out of the net, and he chucks it onto our, our buddy. Right he, he, As he's laying there on the floor, Jordan throws the ball at him. And he says, now you know what it's like to be spanked like a bad child. Right? Uh, total trash talker. So I come up two guys later, and I back off. I decide to give Jordan space. And he looks at me, and he says, are you really going to give me the shot? And I look back at him, and I said, I don't think you have it in you. And uh, Jordan wasn't used to people talking trash back at him. He shakes his head, goes up, takes a shot, and misses. And I get the rebound. And then I take it back outside the three-point line, which I had to do. And Jordan was stepping up. And as he does so, I said, Michael, aren't you going to return the favor? Like encouraging him to be a bad defender. Uh-huh. And he looks at me and he said, I know you don't have that shot in you. Right? And as Jordan stepped up, I actually stepped back and from 26 feet hit the shot. Uh, that I'll talk about for the rest of my life. And um, uh, and, uh, and Jordan is actually, when I do this as a part of a speech, there's a picture of Jordan right afterward when I'm all goofy trying to get a high five from him. And you can read his lips. He's he's uh, he's using a few bombs on me at that moment. <laughs> um, and, uh, and he immediately starts asking me for a rematch, um, you know, to which I said, dude, <laughs> uh, you had your shot. <laughs> and, um, and anyway, that, that, uh, story was this really great lesson because it gave me an opportunity to engage Jordan over the discussion about how a great ones handle failure, right? And, um, and, and losses really in anything, even if it's a charity event and a silly goal, silly, silly moment like that. Um, the great ones take those moments personally, uh, in ways that allow them to separate themselves from other people. And, uh, so it's a, it's a story I love to tell, but more importantly, it's a lesson that I love to remember, which is, uh, yeah. That you'll never that, that if you want to be great, um, you you'll you have to take those moments seriously, and you have to realize that every opportunity we have to compete is is an opportunity for us to measure ourselves, not necessarily against other people, but measure ourselves. And you are official. You are officially the sixth man. Ever I'm officially the Jordan man. in this camp. Yeah, and you I still get a plaque play. or something for that, right? <laughs> well, I still play. I still play in his golf tournament and some other things, and uh, and every once in a while, Jordan will walk up after I'm talking to some guys and. He knows that I'm, I mean, that's the first thing I'm going to tell him, right? And uh, Jordan always walks up and he says, uh, you still telling that BS story, you know? And, and I always remind him, Michael, I will tell this story till the day I die. Uh, you know, I will. Um, I would too. Not many other people. Shirts made, handed out to friends. It, it would be all over the place. There is, actually, my son, my, my son, when he was, this happened a few years ago, and my wife had a bib made for my son that said, my daddy scored on Jordan. So... You know what? That's all. If, if that's all people remember about me, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm okay with that. That's awesome. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, so let, let's just stick down this path. Um, we're going to get to a book you're just getting ready to release that, that talks about a lot of these lessons. Um, so I, as I was reading and as I've gotten to know you a little bit over the years from having you speak and work with our company uh, in different ways, uh, one thing that's always fascinated me is 
your closeness, your exposure to exposure to John Wooden, who mm-hmm. obviously from a coaching aspect, I, I don't know that there's a greater coach that ever lived. And then it's kind of, you know, after the fact, all of these businesses are like, oh, wait, the way he coached, you can actually, it can help you run a more successful business and team and how you can incorporate a lot of these lessons. So what, what was that like being in John Wooden's presence? If you can start there. Sure. I will tell you, I mean, you know, coach Wooden, um, uh, for as great as he was, think about it, right. The guy won 10 national championships. He was the, as you said, in his space, in his sport, best, greatest of all time, like no one, uh, no one's close. And, and yet he had this, this unbelievable humility about him. Um, every time I would be with him, we would go out to, we, he ate at the same restaurant, uh, every morning and he ate at the same restaurant every evening, right? Same. Uh, I, I remember one day asking him, uh, you know, coach wouldn't have, I mean, how many days a week do you eat here for breakfast? And he said, conservatively, seven. <laughs> uh, but that, he just was, a, he, he had this, he was this creature habit. But every day while we were there, it, the waitress would be the same waitress that was there the day before and the, day, and the next day after that. And every day, John Wooden would find something to compliment her about. You know, your hair is looking really good today. You know, I don't know what's making you smile like that, but that's the best, you, you look like you're just, you're beaming of something. I mean, he found something every day to say to her. And it was just this amazing lesson. Right? Here's the, in that little restaurant, the greatest, you could argue the greatest man in that restaurant. Like, like you know, nobody else would have a funeral like him. No one, and yet he found a way to be um, uh, compliment and be, uh, and be in relation with everybody that was around him. Uh, and it was just, um, I was telling the story today at lunch, actually, that, uh, I was with him for 12 years. Every other month for 12 years, I flew to California for a day with him. And, uh, and I remember he was 98. And, I, and I'm thinking, gosh, you know, how many more of these visits do I get? And every time I started going, I started asking myself, and it's a, it's a bad thing to ask, but I started wondering, is today the last time I'll see him? And so you always, you know, you want to leave properly. Mm-hmm. And so he's 98, and, I, and I'm leaving him. And he lived till he's 99 and a half. So this obviously wasn't my last visit. Uh, but I, but as I'm getting up, I said, coach, you know, every time I leave you, I feel like I'm a better man than when I arrived. And, you know, you say that to most of us and we like, you know, oh, shucks. Thank you. That means a lot. I'm, I appreciate that. John Wooden looked at me and he said, you should make that your standard. I thought, wow, what a heavy burden, right? Cause now, now I'm kind of stuck with that. I have to make sure that every time People leave me, they're leaving better than when they arrived. And it's a really, you know, but that's just who he was. You know, he just, that was his commitment to other people. And that was the way he drove other people to start th- seeing relationships uh, with each other. So uh, um, it was a, it was an amazing, it was one of those game changing conversations where in the course of a half a sentence, uh, John Wooden put a challenge for challenge out there for me that I, I hopefully I get to live the next 50 years trying to, trying to commit myself to. That's intense. Pretty amazing. At, um, you, you just reminded me. I did a, I did a previous podcast with Scott McCain. I love Scott. He told a, a similar story like that about Zig Ziglar. Yeah. He wrote him a six-page handwritten note when he lost his wife, and he hadn't talked to him for a year or two. And just that that type of standard, the the truly the great ones. You know, it's the title of one of your books. The great ones. That's just how they carry themselves. Yeah, I mean, my my I had an opportunity with Zig a number of years ago, 
to be a, to be speaking in Dallas, and he had asked me to be on his TV show, um, and uh, and I'm there, but I'm speaking the day before in Dallas, and I look out, and there in the audience is Zig Ziglar, right, with a notepad and a pen of paper. He's like making notes while I'm talking. I'm thinking, you know, there's the greatest, there's one of the great speakers of all time, one of the great motivators of all time, taking notes while I'm talking. It was just this, you know, again, what an amazing. All these people provide lessons for us if we. If we're willing to absorb them and you know and take them properly, huh? Wow. So okay, so I'm curious. As you were telling the the wooden story, how what what led to you going to see him every other month for 12 years? Was this a mentorship that you asked for? What? How did that come about? Sure, it was actually a. a it's got an interesting backstory. So I was writing at Sports Illustrated at the time, and I'd heard a story that uh, the 26-year-old Shaquille O'Neal, who was the hip-hop center of the Los Angeles Lakers, who was making all those horrific movies like Kazam, um, that he was going out on a regular basis to spend an afternoon learning from John Wooden. And I thought, you know, what could these two... John Wooden was 88 at the time, right? Shaq's 26. I'm thinking they're they're from such different places. They have such different... Other than basketball, what could they talk about? Mm Mm-hmm. And so I asked permission uh, through Shaq's college coach for to, to go sit through one of those conversations. And it was powerful. It was amazing. They didn't talk about basketball at all. Uh, coach Wooden was talking to him about being a better father, about how to be a better teammate, how to lead, right? It was this awesome conversation. And, and Shaq called it his mentorship conversation. And so I get up, and I knew John Wooden a little. I didn't know him very well. But I got up and I looked at Coach Wood and I said, this was incredible. And I'm just wondering, I mean, how does somebody become mentored by somebody like you? What a cool thing. Mm-hmm. And John Wood looked at me and he said, you ask. And I said, how many people ask? And he said, not as many as you might think. Which was this really powerful lesson in its own right, right? To find a great mentor, you have to ask. And the truth is, most people don't ask because we're sure the other guy's too busy. He's got too much going on. He's, he's, whatever it is, we're, we, we walk ourselves out of the conversation before it happens. And so a month later, finished the story. I called Coach Wooden. And as I'm talking to him, I said, you know, Coach, I, I really felt as I was standing there, I was supposed to ask. And he said, Don, I wonder what took you so long. <laughs> and so we scheduled the date and I came out and it was this powerful day. And at the end of the day, I asked if I could come back and he picked another day and we started it and went every other month for 12 years. Um, I went to California to spend a day with John Wood and it was, uh, it was game changing, life changing. And uh, it, it one of those things that I will, um, you know, I'm a, I, as I said, I'm a better man because I was there. Yeah. Testament to your, I mean, the, the other thing I was thinking when you were sharing that Don is not only did you ask, but you stuck with it. I mean, every other month for 12 years, that's a serious commitment. Well, but the other thing that was really cool about it is Coach Wood had a really, he, had a, he didn't have many people that he had this relationship with, but he was very um, rigid in the way it had to happen. My job as to coming, I had to come with questions, right? I had to come with a, a lesson plan. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and when I was done asking questions, the day was over. So what does that do for me? That makes me prepare like crazy for that time with John Wooden because I want every hour I can, I want every minute I can get. Mm-hmm. So 
I would take a subject every month. Every time I would come, I would, I would bring a subject that I wanted to learn from him about. Uh, I remember one time, you know, like, for example, I wanted to know, uh, you know, you have 13 players on a college basketball team. And, and, and often those, that, that 11th, 12th, 13th guy, they're never going to see the court. But they're never going to play. And yet you have to keep them inspired. You have to keep them engaged. You have to keep them wanting to be, because otherwise they could become a cancer. And if they become a cancer, it flows up. The, it, can, it can ruin the, the entire locker room. So I wanted to know, how did Coach Wooden inspire the 13th player on his roster every year? And the way I did it was I went through his last 15 years of coaching, and I identified the 13th player on the roster based on playing time, based on going back over old, you know. I spent hours and hours trying to understand who those people were, and Coach Wooden's memory was so precise, I could say, uh, you know, I could name a player, and he could remember what he did with that player and how he inspired that player. But the, but the goal was I wanted to ask as many questions as possible. And I had to come with a game plan at every, and, and again, the rules were pretty simple. The second I've done asking questions, um, he wasn't there just to chat. He, I mean, he enjoyed the conversation, but you know, he had other things he could do. When I was done learning, he, he, it was time to move on. And so I came it forced me to be very well prepared, which I loved. And that was a really great lesson for me as well as a mentee um, to be respectful at this time. I wanted to drive the most I could from every minute there. So the, the time period here would have been, you were at Sports Illustrated. I was at Sports Illustrated when it started, yeah. Had you written your first book by then? Yeah, I'd written several, actually. You'd written several. Okay, yeah. I wasn't sure if you were doing that while you were at Sports Illustrated or yeah. if that was as you transitioned. No, I still, I still did them at Sports Illustrated and uh, – yeah, and and what, but one of the things that was really cool was that I never once asked him to do a book because I didn't think that I didn't want to I didn't want to pollute the relationship. You know, I wanted it to be purely I'm here to learn, right? Um, and I didn't want him to think it was just a setup so I could make money. Mm-hmm. And finally, after uh, almost ten years of doing this, he said, "By the way, how come you've never asked me about doing a book?" He broached the subject, and so we wrote a book together on the power of mentoring. And uh, it's called A Game Plan for Life. And it came out on his 99th birthday. Hmm. And it was the last book he wrote while he was alive. It was awesome. What an honor. Yeah. Wow. Man, I, I feel like we should just stop right now. I don't, I don't know that it can get any better, man. That's an <laughs> awesome story. Oh, he's, so, he's amazing. Wow. Um, so, okay. So let's, let's keep going here. So um, as you... As you transitioned out of Sports Illustrated, uh, you did you do that for the purpose of becoming a book writer? Uh, was it more do- towards the speaking path? Was it combining the two? Walk us down the path. Sure, it went from Sports so, Illustrated to where you are now. Sure. So I've written twenty. I've written twenty five books now, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Twenty five, um, and and uh, I've written. Four, three or four or five of them before I went to Sports Illustrated. And even while I was at SI, I was writing one almost every year. And uh, so uh, when I transitioned out, they offered a buyout and it was just the perfect time for me to leave. A, they saw the future of the advertising model that was uh, that was crippling magazines today. And it was a good time to, to get out ahead of that uh, uh, that crippling situation. Uh, but but secondly, I wanted, I wanted to speak. I love to stand. I love... I love sharing stories, but but most writers don't like doing it verbally. And I, I grew to really appreciate and enjoy. I'm the son of a preacher. 
So I grew to enjoy the opportunity to stand up uh, in front of an audience, tell the exact same story I might have written. But when I'm telling it to you, I get to watch you. I get to see how it impact, impacts you um, as I'm looking in your eyes. And it was a different dynamic for me, and it, and it made storytelling even more exciting. And so, um, so I hired speaking coaches. Uh, I went and, and I, I, I decided I was going to take that retirement opportunity to build a speaking business. And um, you know, last year I did 80 of them uh, all around the world. I get the chance to travel, speak, and, and share um, share stories and, uh, and lessons that I've learned from great winners and, and great teams. Mm-hmm. So from, from, from a book writing perspective, over 20 <laughs> books, uh, obviously this podcast is for financial advisors, right? Sure. Uh, many of the advisors that are our clients and that we help uh, from a business business mentoring coaching aspect uh, either are authors or want to be authors and some of them want to be authors again. So what would you, what advice would you give someone? Let's say it's their very first book. What advice would you give them? A couple tips, three tips uh, to to help them become an author. Well, first is um, around the idea of, uh, so two things I would offer real quick. One is that if people want to read or listen to stories, right? They don't want to listen to advice. Uh, they don't want to. They don't want to be preached at. They want to listen to stories. I mean, um, uh, and so be a storyteller. Um, when you, if you want to make a point about uh, how about the importance of making certain decisions, tell stories about people who made that decision, or maybe stories about people who didn't. And but how whatever it is you do. Build your message around storytelling, and the and the greatest, you know, I argue all the time. I I, I just I was a senior fellow at West Point uh, earlier this spring, uh, working with cadets, and while I was there, I, I was explaining to them in the in the in, in my discussions on leadership with them that the greatest leaders of all time are, are the greatest storytellers, right? Uh, that those who can actually make you feel like you're part of the tale um, are those who can bring people along to do things they wouldn't naturally do. So be a storyteller. Uh, the second thing I would tell them is to be organized. And I'm a, I, I learned many years ago that the most important thing I could do, the most important aspect of my book writing uh, window, right when I was starting a book and then before it's finished, is that first month when I build the outline. And, and I build an outline that is, that is so, so thick Sometimes you might argue the outline could be the book, right? Hmm. In the outline, I take you, th- I, I take myself through every chapter of the book before I ever write a word. I want to say in chapter one, we're going to tell this story. It's going to lead to this discussion point. It's going to flow to this story. And in fact, my outlines are so um, precise. I actually, I write the first uh, paragraph and the last paragraph of every chapter in the outline. And the reason I do it is because then I know how they're going to flow one to the next, right? Mm-hmm. Because I know how last chapter ended. I know how the next chapter should start. Um, and so I'm, I also am not a big believer in a bunch of independent thoughts. I think people read a book for flow, right? There has to be something that it has to be a, a narrative that pulls it together. The outline keeps me, um, keeps me uh, organized. It allows me to be, um, uh, to pay attention to, uh, to to where I'm going with each one. In fact, you know, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll make an offer here. If if any of you, Brad, if any of your your listeners 
want to send me an email, I'll give you my email address. It's don at team180.com, T-E-A-M 180.com. I'll gladly send them one of my outlines. They can see kind of how, how that's constructed in a way that allows me to stay strong and, uh, and organized throughout what can be a really arduous and very lonely process. Awesome. Thanks for making uh, that offer. No, that's, I actually, that's I, I, bonus I, stuff guys. That was not discussed <laughs> beforehand. So. No, I actually, I sent a couple of outlines to, uh, to a couple of folks recently who I think are, who, who want to build uh, build book projects uh, in your advisor community and uh, in the AE community. And uh, so I, I, I'd be glad to share. Appreciate it. So, so one of the things uh, we're doing this podcast, you have a new book that's coming out. Uh, It's actually, so I wanted to show you this. So this was one of the times you came out to speak out at one of our events. It's torn up. Might've been the first time you autographed. My wife was a volleyball coach, a two time state champion volleyball coach. So, Um, and so I had you uh, write her a little note in here. I wanted to show you it's been read, buddy. This is not this is not one of those books that just sits on a pile, you know, and gathers dust. So awesome. I like it. So she read this and she you are actually taking some of the concepts I would assume out of this, your most latest book that will be released uh, July 19th, Great Teams, 16 Things High Performing Organizations Do Differently. So actually, it's not. It's really fascinating. What happened? The, the backstory is that while writing, well, that book led me to do the speech that I've done for AE a number of times mm-hmm. about individual high performance. What can we do to get the very best from ourselves? Mm-hmm. So five years ago, um, a senior executive at Microsoft, a, a guy who hires me twenty times a year to speak for his team and his customers. Um, he actually grabbed me and he said, you know what? I love this discussion, high performance, individual performance. Awesome. But I want to know why can some teams do it year in and year out? Why can the, why are the St. Louis Cardinals always relevant, right? Why are the San Antonio Spurs always in the hunt? Why can Duke basketball be, be there all Michigan state basketball? Why do some teams do it and other teams can't? And so I took the, I took the dare. And, uh, and I started building into my schedule everywhere I traveled, um, visits with high-performing coaches, coaches and, and owners and leaders of organizations, teams mostly, that, um, that were in the world of sports that were, that were consistently relevant, right? I mean, they didn't have to win every year, but a Bill Self at Kansas or, or, or a Bill Snyder at Kansas State, to use two in your backyard there, um, you know, who, who were the people that always figured out how to pull together a group of people to do something that others can't do. And then I sat down at the end of all of these interviews and I tried to calculate out what answers came up most often. And that's what those 16 are. So they're, it's a, it's a wholly different discussion because it's instead of about high performing individuals, this is about high performing teams. Why do some teams do what others can't? And you know what? A team is no more than two people coming together to do something, right? Uh, I mean, it doesn't require, you don't have to have a thousand uh, in your in your um, in your organization to to say you're building a team. Uh, a team can be you and a partner. Now, how do you do something special? And I studied them all, and um, and it's been a really fascinating learning experience. So, tell us one of your favorite stories out of the book. I'd I'd love to hear it. So, my the the, the number one answer that comes up is the great teams. And by the way, I, I also interviewed about a dozen business leaders. Um, 
So it's Gary Kelly, the CEO of, of Southwest Airlines. Um, it's G.J. Hart, the CEO of California Pizza Kitchens. Um, you know, it's the uh, Tony Shea from Zappos. But but it's Cody Foster from Advisors Excel. I mean, my dozen book, awesome. My dozen business leaders who were my my models and in uh, in that side of the bit of, of the of the program, um, it included Cody. So, uh, but the number one answer that comes up when you ask these folks, how do you build an organization that wins consistently? Right. I mean, great talent, good luck can help you win once. Uh, but to win over and over and over again, to be all to be there, um, you have to have a sense of purpose. You have to understand your why. Who are we in service of? Why does what we do matter? What happens if we if we fail? Right? What happens to to that customer and their downstream customer if we fail? And so, the example I use in the in the book and and in, often in the keynote speech I give on this subject is uh, is about Mike Shashevsky. Who became, you know, if you remember in 1992, we had the dream team, right? Mm-hmm. Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, they dominated the world. But a mere 10 years later, USA Basketball finished sixth in the world. So we went from dream team to sixth in the world in just a decade. And it wasn't that they didn't have talent. They still had amazing talent. They just weren't, they didn't have the same sense of purpose. The dream team came together to prove to the world that if you let us send our very best, nobody can beat us. And that was their, and so they didn't ever put, they didn't take their foot off the throttle. They're beating Nigeria by a hundred points. It doesn't matter. They want to win by 102, right? Um, and so, uh, they, but by 10 years later, we'd lost our sense of purpose. We, we no longer, it wasn't that big a deal. So they hand the reins of USA basketball to Mike Krzyzewski, the head coach at Duke. And, uh, and part of the reason they do so is that Mike Krzyzewski played his college basketball and began his coaching career at West Point. Uh, so he knew what it meant to wear USA on the front on, on, and have those letters on his chest, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and so he said, by the way, one of the first things we have to do, Shashevsky uh, did what any great leader does when you are in a moment of transition. Uh, he went on a listening tour. Right? He went around to sit down with all the all the affected parties, you know, who the players who had been there, and the co- he wanted to know what happened. And what he learned was that. You know, you can take most organizations and you can put most most of your team into one of two buckets, he argues. Uh, the first bucket are your patriots. Right? Those are the people that believe in what you're doing. They value what you're doing and they want to be part of it. And the second bucket are your mercenaries. Right? Those are the people that are working for you till somebody offers them a dollar more. Right? And he said, our problem was we had too many mercenaries in our basketball program. We needed more patriots. I need to infect my team with this sense of greater purpose. So we started bringing in wounded warriors to speak to the players. He started, he started, uh, you know, he, they turned one of their practice games into a, into a, a recruiting ceremony where half the, where, where at halftime, a hundred young men and women came down out of the stands to sign the paperwork to join the United States military. And our players stood behind them to sign as their witnesses. Right. When our players are now connected to that person who's going off to protect our country. I mean, it's just different. You suddenly feel differently about the organization you're part of when you realize that, that you're part of something big. I mean, in the greatest moment that he had, uh, almost everybody involved with USA Basketball will tell you, was that right before they took the team to the London Olympics in 2012, Kosciuszewski took our players to Arlington National Cemetery. 
And while he's got him there, um, uh, General Martin Dempsey, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, walks the players through Arlington and he explains to them what the history of Arlington is and he explains to them who's buried there. And then he walks them over to Section 60. Section 60 are the freshest graves at Arlington. Right? It's, the, it's the place where the young men and women who have most recently given their lives for our country are buried. And while they're, while they're standing there, Mike Krzyzewski notices that about 100 feet away, there's a young man. And he's dressed in civilian clothes, and he's got, but he's got a crew cut. So Coach Krzyzewski assumes he's a member of the military. He's got a backpack over his shoulders. And, and every once in a while, he would step to a gravesite. He'd pull out a picture out of his backpack, and he'd lay it at the headstone. So Coach K walks over to him. He says, excuse me, sir, I'm, I'm Mike Krzyzewski. I'm the head men's basketball coach of our Olympic team. And I'm wondering if you would share with me what you're doing here today. And the young man says, yes, Coach K, I know who you are. He said, this was my team. And we had a mission, and it didn't go as planned. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm here today. These are pictures of me and them in better days. And Coach K asked the young man if he would come over and talk to our players. And he did. He started talking about being part of a team bigger than you, right? Being part of an organization. Being part of something that's, that, that's doing something special. And he talked about, talked about survivor's guilt. He hated the idea that that mission had happened and he wasn't there that day. And then he became overwhelmed by emotion. And he actually turned around and walked away. After a few seconds, Mike Krzyzewski leans in and he says, guys, that's why we came here today. We came here because I want you to feel the three letters on your chest. Kevin Durant told me after that, he said, you know what? I've never put my jersey on the same way ever since then. Uh, I've never worn the USA jersey the same way as I did uh, after that, after that moment. Because the players felt who they were in service of. They felt who they were partnered with. And the great teams can feel it. Right? The great teams can, and, and it flows throughout your entire organization if you've got those moments like that, feel it moments. And so, uh, you know, I look at great teams and I, and I look at the ones that have been really successful and the great ones have that connection to their purpose. And that connection doesn't just exist in the corner office, it flows throughout the organization. They make these moments felt by everyone throughout the team in a way that allows the team to believe we're part of something big, right? We're part of something big. Um, you know, with in every effort not to be pandering, I mean, one of the reasons I use AE as an example is that the way you all do, uh, you know, your ice bucket challenge and all the other things you do where you're wearing T-shirts to do things in the community, you know what, you're not, that doesn't truly benefit the, the advisors who are in your community, but what it does is it rallies the team you have in service of those advisors to remember that what they're part of is a team doing something big, right? And and the and, and those teams who do that, those teams win year after year, and that's been that's been my greatest lesson from from uh, from doing this study and, and from all that I've been able to learn over the course of this last five years. Wow, that's that's incredible stuff. Um... By the way, if uh, you get a chance, I keep trying to get Cody to let me come in and tell that story to your team. So uh, use that, use that, use this as well, a way to now. Of... Now it's via, now it's on a podcast, so I'll I'll hold him down and make him listen to the podcast. Okay, and then, <laughs> there you go. Deal. So, um, 
so let's let's go that's such an amazing story and i think that when you look at the financial advisory space a lot of our clients that's one of the biggest struggles is um you know and i'm going to i'm going to paint a broad stroke here but most successful financial advisors type a personalities hard drivers um they're really good at making sure they do what they need to do to be successful right what's a struggle is once they've gotten to a level of success they become sometimes a victim of their own success where it just i can't do everything anymore like i used to when i was a one-man show or maybe an assistant so maybe if you can pick another lesson out of the great teams on maybe lessons that can help people grow delegate um, give away some of the power that they have as an individual to become more as a team. Sure. Anything from the book, talk to that. Absolutely. So the number one, you know, the one, one of the things that really matters, especially as you grow, is it gets harder to protect your culture, right? Uh, when it's you and an assistant, you can have a culture. The culture is we're going to be of service. We're always going to, you know, we'll take every call no matter when it is. We're going to, you know, no one will ever feel like they're not touched. You can do all of that. Um, then suddenly now you got a staff of 10, whatever it is, and you're, and, and, and some of them might be mercenaries, right? They may be only working for you until somebody offers them a dollar more. How do you keep them aligned with your culture? Well, one of the first things you do is you, uh, is you boldly declare, here's what we stand for, right? Here's what we, this is our culture and, and our culture is what we stand for, what we value, right? And, and what we, what we won't accept, you have to you have to kind of make both sides of that equation clear, uh, and when you say I, I, I tell the story that I remember years ago as a reporter in Texas showing up for an interview at Enron at the headquarters of Enron, and I'll never forget walking into the to the offices of Enron and there there on the there was the receptionist and right behind her were our values right and number one on the values uh, on the on the wall behind the receptionist at Enron was integrity right. That wasn't their value, right? The truth was they were living a wholly different value system, but they told the world one thing, they lived a different. The truth is your values are what you live. And if you say, here's what we value in our little in our organization as we grow to 10, and and here, by the way, I you know, we we want to catch people doing things right. And then we want to celebrate them for doing for doing things that, that that align with our values. And the more you do of that as a leader, the more your team, they want to be rewarded. They want to be recognized. They want to, they want to feel like what they're doing is, is everybody wants to be part of something. I, I mean, I've never met anyone that truly did not want to be part of, of, a, of a winning team or, or a great organization. So if they want to, we just have to explain to them what that looks like. And then we have to, uh, and then we have to reward them when, when somebody uh, when somebody does those things, right? We need to, and by that, I mean, it, it could be as easy as praise. It could be as, as great as a note of appreciation. It could be a, you know, a, a parking space, however you want to do it, but, but recognize people who are doing the things you say you value. Uh, celebrate daily victories is what Jim Calhoun, the head coach at UConn used to say to me is that if you want to be successful here in any, in any, as your organization grows a little bit is celebrate daily victories um, where somebody on your team is doing something you say you value. And as you celebrate them, they want to do more of it. And then other people say, oh my gosh, I want to do some of that so that I can be celebrated. And you start to make the culture, it, it, it embeds itself more deeply, right? It becomes habit. And that's what we want. We want culture to become habit. 
And, and so that's something I would tell anybody who's starting to find some success is as you hire people, right? Look for fit, not, not, not resume. Uh, you know, some of the most important people, some of the greatest people you find probably have lousy resumes, but they will fit your culture. And that's really, that's number one, most important. And then second, celebrate them when they do, when they do things right so that they will want to do more of that to get celebrated more often. Good advice. So, so with team building, um, going through and seeing a number of different teams, I'm sure you had all kinds of different experiences, heard all kinds of different stories. I think one of the things as well that when I look at Advisors Excel, I started, we were 12 employees today. I think last count we were 430. So much different. I'll be you too. Well, yeah. I, I know Cody likes to take a lot of the credit, but we, we all know how this company was truly built, right, Don? I, t- I totally so. get it. <laughs> so um, as you go, one of the things we do, um, you spoke to it a little bit. Uh, we do different charitable events. One thing is we've gotten larger. It's really cool because there are random people that we're paired up with, right? So we're doing a really awesome cause for the community at the same time, there's might be 10 other people there from Advisor Excel that I've never met before. So it, it becomes this team bonding experience too, going back to the common good. And, and you know, this is what Advisor Excel is about. Are there, as you study these different teams, these different leaders, coaches, are there any cool sort of team building exercises that you came across that other teams are using that financial advisors might be able to use to bring and pull everybody together as, as the team grows and gets larger? Well, I think you you named you named one of the most important one, right? Is to do a team building exercise that's um, that's not you know not cheesy, not about you know going out and climbing a ladder together, whatever it is, but it's about uh, it's about service, right? Um, if you can create if you can create opportunities for service, um, that's really valuable. The other thing that you know that when you think team building, to me, a lot of that comes down to camaraderie. And what are this? What's the root of camaraderie? Is knowing each other. The truth is, I mean, I, I spoke to a company. I was in a, I was in a small office of a company recently where they wanted me to talk to them about teams, and so I, I looked at two of the people who had been there, and I asked you, "How long have you been here?" And they, twenty-one years. How long have you been here? Thirteen years. So the two of you have worked together for thirteen years. Yes, awesome. Can you tell me the names of his children? Uh, no, we've never. I mean, you know. So one of the things that you when you mentioned the opportunity in that in that service op, service thing. You get to know each other in ways. You create common experiences. You create stories that we can laugh about when we see each other in the hall. You, you, that, that's what drives camaraderie. And then it's about knowing each other. So finding ways to actually uh, introduce your team. Uh, we, we, we do a little thing in, in, my, in my office. I have 18 employees. So it's not that big a deal. Um, but in my little 18 employees, uh, we do a deal every every month where when we gather for our lunch that uh, is celebration of someone's anniversary, uh, I pick out two of the employees and they they have to give the the, the question of the day is I, I bet you didn't know right and they have to share something about themselves that they're probably a strong opportunity no one else in the office knows but you know suddenly you find out a guy you know the toughest guy in the room that you think is really you know is this guy that's a little gruff and deal occasionally difficult to deal with loves to sing karaoke, right? Um, you know, I mean, it's this crazy deal. You learn things because I bet you didn't know it was intended to be that. Like, tell me something that will totally blow everybody in the room away. 
how do you build those things, right? You, it, you have to be thoughtful uh, in, in, your, in your opportunity to try to create them for, uh, for those that you, that you have in your, uh, in your sphere. Great. All right. So I've got a list of questions here and I can already tell you there's no chance I'm getting to half of them. This is awesome stuff. So thank you, Don. This, this has been fun so far. So, um, let's, but it's been fun so far. So you're anticipating it's going to go downhill from here. Well, I don't think it will, but it's completely up to you. Okay. <laughs> no, well, let's, just... let's, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> so, uh, earlier you shared some tips for people writing their first book. What, let's go to the flip side of that coin. What are, what's a mistake or a common mistake you see from first time authors or guys that maybe have messed something up along the way when they're writing a book? I think, uh, again, this is very personal. So I'm going to, I know other people would argue with this. I'm, I, I'm just going to tell you, this is my experience and, I, and I've, I've done, I think I've done okay in that space. Uh, but I, what I see too many people say, you know what, I'm going to block out from 12 to two every day. I'm going to write. That's going to be my window time. I'm going to force myself. I think that's just crap, frankly, right? That entire, that I think that part of the reason why I do the whole outline is that uh, some days I might wake up and I'm going, you know what, today I really want to tell the story of, of Brad and that bear, right? You know, uh, and I, but there's probably not a story about Brad and a the bear. There might be, but whatever it is, I, I may wake up that day and say, that's what I want to write about today. And that may be in chapter 11. But if I've outlined my book well enough, I know I can write that chapter and it doesn't hurt me. Many people think they have to write in sequential order, right? I got to start here and then I got to go there and then I got and I got to do it for two hours every day. And I appreciate all that discipline and I think that's awesome. But I honestly think that if you've done that first piece, which is the good outline, you you avoid the mistake of, of everybody talks about writer's block, right? I'm, I'm like, I'm there, I'm staring at a screen, I don't know what to write. I have never suffered writer's block. I mean, I've written, you know, 25 books and, you know, probably, uh, probably a quarter million words over the course of, of my, of my just book writing career. And, um, and, and I've never suffered writer's block because I don't, I don't put the kind of pressure on myself to say I have to write from noon to two. And I, and I don't think I have to write in sequential order. I can, I can pick my project up anywhere I want because I feel comfortable with the outline. Hmm. So I heard the advice, make sure I don't butcher this, write the least amount you feel like writing each day. Do you follow that school of thought where, hey, if I write a sentence today, I'm good if I don't feel like it? Or do you have a set where I need to knock this out chunks at a time? I write, I write, um, I think you should write when it's, when you're passionate about it, right? And often I'll tell you, now that I have two small kids, my writing occurs at midnight, right? And I'll write till, and, and sometimes I'll look up and it's 6 a.m. My little boy is wandering out of his room and, and I realize I've written all night, but I didn't look at the clock. I don't pay attention to those things. I'm just in the moment, right? I'm writing, I'm writing when I'm passionate. And, um, uh, and so that's, I, 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 that's an interesting phrase. I've never thought of it that way. I write, I write whatever I feel like writing and I don't, I don't stay and write any longer past that. Do you find that's your creative time of day is late night or do you early, ever go yeah. early morning? I am the late, I'm not an early morning guy. Night owl guy. I'm, I'm a night owl guy. Exactly. Huh? Okay. So let's, um, let's keep going here. Um, so you have some incredible 
people that you've written their life lessons. And, and when I say incredible, they're incredible people because I've heard you tell stories about them, but they're also incredibly successful to the outside world. Um, I'm going to throw a, a few names at you. You already mentioned some stories on John Wooden, so maybe I'll skip over him for now. Uh, someone like a Walter Payton or someone like a Warwick Dunn. Let's tailor it to just, it can be life in general, but it can also apply to, to business for a financial advisor. Uh, what are some lessons or some things you took away from those great people when you were rubbing elbows with them that, that you think people could benefit from here today on the call? Well, you know, I've, I've shared the story with Walter Payton. I mean, again, the biggest piece for him, he was hyper-focused as a, as a person on doing something every day for someone who couldn't return his favor. Right? That was his big deal. Um, uh, and he wanted to be able to, he wanted to make sure it was real. Like he wanted to do something. He wasn't sign an autograph. It was write a letter or it was make a phone call or it was drop by a, you know, a, a charity, uh, or a hospital. He did something every day. He believed that was a, that was his little, you know, that was his place every day was to find somebody or something he could do, uh, that couldn't give him anything back. Like it wasn't for a sponsor. It wasn't for the team. It wasn't, it was something that he did every day for someone who couldn't give him anything in return. Go ahead. Do you have any examples, just a, a quick story on here's one way he did that? Sure. So uh, um, in, in the year that they won the Super Bowl in 1985 Bears, right? Uh, they were, you know, the 30 for 30 was just done on them recently. Mm-hmm. That team, I mean, it was the greatest Chicago Bears team of all time, but uh, for all the for all the talent they had, uh, they also they had a young woman who was the front desk clerk at their training complex, and she was having a rough time at home. And she and Walter knew it because every day on his way into and his way into work, right, he stopped at her desk to talk about her three children, and she would tell them stories. But part of what she told him was that that the children were acting up in school because there was so much friction at home between she and her husband. It was causing them to carry some of that to school. So Walter Payton, on five different occasions during the Super Bowl year, the greatest year Chicago Bears have ever had, he got up every morning. Or he got up at the end of practice when everybody else left the stadium, left the, left the practice facility. Walter walked back and tapped that woman on the shoulder and told her to go spend the afternoon with her children. And he sat down and answered phone calls, right? Um, you know, I joke all the time, imagine calling to complain about your season tickets on that day, right? There's Walter Payton answering the phone. But the end, the end result is that Walter, he didn't, I mean, that woman couldn't do anything for him, right? She was a receptionist. You could argue um, you know, that, that there was no benefit to Walter in that. But he knew in each one of those days, he did something for her that she couldn't repay him for. He sent her home to spend the afternoon with her kids. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's, the, that's the stuff of legend, right? That's the stuff that, that, uh, that most of us, um, that's, that's a thoughtfulness and an engagement that most of us don't ever, uh, don't ever go there. Hmm. Yeah. That's a great example. I, Walter. Uh, yeah. You wouldn't want to complain about your tickets that day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, I'm bouncing, I'm bouncing back and forth here a little bit, but um, so something that I was thinking through uh, when you look at a lot of our advisors that have written books, it's hard enough to write a book, but I, I think many of them would argue, I wrote the book. Now, what do I do with it? 
And a guy that has had nine New York Times bestsellers obviously knows a little bit about how you promote a book. So going down that line, I now have the finished product in my hands, or I know a lot of this starts before the finished product shows up in your hands. What are some some big takeaways, some keys financial advisors out there could do to promote their book with obviously the end result being, hey, I would love to acquire some clients, maybe from the credibility that comes from the book, maybe from being introduced to me through the book. What are your thoughts there? So a couple of things I would tell you is that, uh, you know, every, every book that I've written six months out, whatever it is, uh, uh, I sit down with the public relations team that's going to work with me on the promotion of the book. Uh, and the first thing I do is the first question always asked is, give me three or four nuggets in this book that will surprise people or that will, um, will make them go, wow, okay, I had, I had no idea. That's a really great idea. Boy, I wish I'd thought of that, right? And the truth is, um, uh, I've read some of the financial advisor books that are out there. I've read some that are written by AE advisors. Um, and, and, you know, by and large, a lot of the advice is very close to the same. But each one of you have, each one of your advisors has that little, either either it's a backstory or it's some kind of piece of advice or something that you offer that's different from other people. And then that's, so reduce your entire book. It's kind of, it's kind of awkward because I'm telling you now you, you've written 50,000 words, reduce it to three nuggets, but you have to, because if you're going to try to get any attention, uh, a reporter needs to know, here are the two or three nuggets that you that they'll find interesting and unique about the story you're presenting. Uh, financial advisor with a book, um, there are there are a lot of them these days, right? We, we all know that, but the but the great ones, the ones that can actually get attention, are those that can can synthesize the the two or three or four things that they really think somebody can take from their book in in, in short nuggets. Then you reach out. Then the two things: number one, you reach out and and through your public relations team or whatever it is, introduce yourself to as many of the local media as you can, right? Um, but then secondly, stay hyper aware of, of uh, current events, right? What's happening? Uh, if there's a, you know, if Brexit, you know, Brit- Britain's exit from the EU is a big story uh, in the news over the next two weeks, um, you know, how can one of those three nuggets that you've got in your book relate to what's happening in the world today. How can, you know, if, uh, if the Dow drops 500 points today, how can something you've got in your book um, serve as, as instructive for a person who's freaked out over, uh, over that kind of a loss? Um, you have to do the work on the front end, which is the reduction of your story to three to four really solid nuggets. And then secondly, look for opportunities to uh, in, I mean, look for local stories. I mean, some uh, business, some guy's going out of business and, and he's going to let 100 employees go. Um, that could be a really great place for you to go to the local media and say, by the way, you know what? Those 100 employees are going to be stretched in a tight marketplace to think through how they're getting. But, you know, the last thing they should do is cash in their 401k. And, you know, many people think it's the first place they should go, which, you know, if, if you're I mean, think of a way that a local story can be can be can relate to what you do and the advice you give, and then give freely. Like give give this advice, and, and pretty soon people go, "Wow, that guy, that guy's that guy's got some." I, I want to. I think I want that guy on my side, right? And uh, and so those would be two things I'd say. 
reduce it to a, to a few nuggets, and then B, um, work with your public relations team or whatever it is to think through how can we make what I have here, um, how can I create a local angle uh, for, for that, for, for what we've got. Okay. So what are your channels to take that advice, which is great advice, and take it even a step further? We're obviously on a podcast here today. And we're talking about your upcoming book. So podcasts, that might make a lot of sense, right? Absolutely. But what other media sources or where have you found success? Different, let's call them funnels. You know, if, if a podcast was a funnel, if TV was a funnel, if radio was a funnel, uh, if your website, your internet presence was a funnel, where have you seen some of the best success with your books? Well, so we do, we do things like, uh, so I've got, a, I've got this new book coming out. One of the things we've done is I, I reached out to, um, uh, and, and gosh, think about this. You could do this too. One of your advisors could. Uh, I reached out to a hundred coaches, and uh, and again, I'm, we're talking about to- something slightly different, but not totally. Mike Shashevsky sends me. He reads the manuscript of my book. He sends me a quote, right? Uh, and so, what's going to happen on the day the book comes out? Well, this is going to go for sixty days, actually, for me. Um, you know, starting thirty days before the book start comes out. We're going to post a quote from Mike Krzyzewski on my social media. We're going to send a note to Coach K saying, Coach, thanks so much for your kind words about my book. And and he will retweet that. He'll share that quote so that other people now are suddenly going, wow. So what if your advisor were to identify, let's say there's 25 stories they tell in their book of people who they have the permission to share the stories about. And what if some of those people would be willing when, when the book is getting ready to come out, they, they, they hit them with social media. And they said, by the way, Brad, thanks so much. I really, um, you know, I love telling your story. Uh, and thanks for letting me share that with other people. You know, the book's, the book's coming out in a couple of weeks. Would you mind sharing it with your friends? Right? Mm-hmm. Now, Brad sends a little note on his Facebook, and you may have, well, you, you probably have five, six friends. Um, other people probably have more. My wife has a lot, though. Okay, good. So let's ask your wife to do this. Um, but you ask other people who have, you, you're looking for downstream influence, right? Um, you've now shared something. So you want people to, to congratulate you on this really cool book and the lessons that are learned in it. Uh, and when they, and then somebody will go, wow, I wonder what that book's about. Click, right? There's an embedded link in, in the social media post. Click and they can be, they can, they can have the opportunity to order the book or get a free copy or whatever you want to do. Well, so, and, and to take that a step further, something we were talking about before we went live here, you're offering a digital download of the first chapter, right? So if you, Correct. that link then takes them to your website where they can get their free digital download or a reduced price for the book, different right. things. And oh, by the way, in order to get the digital download, and I, I'll say, I'll, I'll admit this to those who are listening and I hope they will, uh, you know, when they come to that page, uh, which is teams.donyager.com. Uh, and I'll send it to you. You can put it in the in the text that comes with 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 this uh, podcast. But in order to get that download, they they have to enter their email address for it to be emailed to them. Well, that's awesome for me because now I have the opportunity to reach back to them and say, by the way, I hope you enjoyed that first chapter. And if you did, I hope you'll buy the entire book. And here's a link to buy it at a discount to, at any one of the major retailers in America. Um, so you know, it's again, it's how do you how do you create value for other people and how do you, how do you, you know, how do you create opportunities for more people to hear about your project? The book is a great way for, for friends and other people to say, congratulations to my buddy, Brad, 
who just wrote a dynamic book about how to save, how, how to make sure your retirement years are the best years of your life, right? Mm-hmm. Click here. And, and then boom, people start clicking. Hey, you get a free chapter if you, if you by clicking here, you just got to enter your email address. Once they enter their email address, they are a pro, they're a prospect, baby. Mm-hmm. You know, that's awesome. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to throw this idea at you. If you haven't heard it, I'm going to feel pretty good because with as many books as you've promoted, this is a fun one. Uh, so pre-release, so Mike Krzyzewski would be a good one, right? So Mike is a quote of his feet. Well, his actual story is featured in the book, correct? Yeah, and he gave me a quote for the back of the book that says, Don Yeager does it again, whatever it is, right? So, so here's what I've had. One of my advisors did this. He shared this with me. If I could remember who it was, I would give him, him credit on the on the call here today. But you just so, steal it nonetheless. That's good. Yes, but then I'm going to share it and, and he's getting ideas from you. So we'll call it even. So okay, yeah. um, so what he did was he, uh, I think he got a box of maybe 50 books pre-order and he went ahead and personalized them to 10 of his top clients or so. And he sent them, uh, you know, your book right here. So he sent them the real book and with their own book, I should say, with a little inscription, hey, loved serving you as a client. Um, here, this is pre-release. You can't even get this yet, but you're one of my favorite clients. So I wanted to, to gift this book to you. And then by the way, I included an additional copy so you can gift one to a friend. Uh, and so it's like kind of this, you feel like special because, hey, this thing's not even available. This is my special little batch of pre-orders. You can't even get it today. But the, going back to the referral concept, right. uh, an additional book to share with a friend, going back to uh, the social influence that you can give because now I can gift a book that they can't even get anywhere else in the world. So right. that was a cool idea that, that he shared idea. and had a lot of success with. So yeah. maybe you can use that one. I don't I'll know. Try to, I'll, that I'll steal it too. You. Look, I, I, I love the, the I love writing books. I love telling the stories, but I love the marketing aspect of it too because it's the uh, it's the opportunity to say to people, you know what? I, I think I've got something special here, and I'd really love you to uh, to be part of me being able to share that with other people. And it's pretty mm-hmm. cool. All right, so we have eight minutes left. Eight minutes. So I'm going to do this ads. fun little thing. It's called rapid fire questions, okay. and. I'm just going to throw them at you if you're good to go, Don, Let's for do eight it. minutes. Eight minutes is tough. All right. I know we're, this is like the fourth quarter right now. So I hope, I hope the I play, I play for the fourth quarter, baby. <laughs> All right. So this will be a really fun one for you because you've been exposed to so many awesome people. So when you hear the word successful, who's the first person that comes to mind and why? John Wooden. And because he, uh, he, he, he thought success differently than most of us. Most of us see success as a scoreboard. John Wooden saw success as doing your very best every day. If you have, he argued that if you, and only you know if you did it, right? I mean, you can't argue I did my best when you really know you left, you, 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 you had more in you. So I believe that John Wooden, when I think of success, I think of coach because he thought of it differently and I love his definition of success. Uh, it's hard to top that guy's success. So, I mean, if right. it's his, if I have any other definition, I'm switching it to John Wooden's Good. by default. So I, I would too. <laughs> uh, all right. Next one. Once again, this is going to be a fun one. So as an author, what's your favorite book you've ever read and why, or secondarily, I'll give you a little time to think here. Is there a book that you've gifted the most over the years and what is it and why? 
So my favorite book, this is going to probably come as a surprise to all of us, those who know me as a sports guy, uh, was Nicholas Sparks, uh, The Notebook. Uh, it was the book that Nicholas Sparks wrote about a, a woman suffering Alzheimer's and the husband that loved her. Um, and I'm a, I'm, my, my mother uh, died of Alzheimer's and, and there, they, it was the, it was the disease that, that robbed her of everything that she had. Uh, and, um, and so that it just came, that book and, and my introduction to Nicholas at a, at a book signing together, the two of us did a book signing together, um, uh, led me to just become a big fan. And as I read that book and cried my eyes out over and over again, um, I, that book became one that I've read many times because it makes me think, uh, powerful things about what we, what we do for those who, um, who don't have it all together, you know, because of some disease and how we, how, how we can, uh, be better in that space. So that, that I know that probably would shock anybody that was looking for some big football book, but uh, it's Nicholas Sparks and it's the notebook. Well, my wife just fell in love with you. If <laughs> she watches this or listens, that's we had Nicholas. Sparks. I guess, by the way, your wife doesn't listen to this. <laughs> so uh, I, I actually have read that book. So f- fun little side note here. One Valentine's Day, my wife and I made a wager. And so I had to read a Nicholas Sparks book which was the notebook. Yeah. And she had to watch all three star Wars in the, in the trilogy. So I don't know who won the bet, but it was fun. Um, all right. If you could look back, uh, let me think here. Let's, let's go, let's go your 20 year old self and your 30 year old self. So if you could look back, go back in a time machine, tap yourself on the shoulder and give your 20 year old self a piece of advice. What would it be? Uh, um, to probably have been a better student. I was a lousy student. I was one of those people that did. I, I, you know, I argued that the only reason I was in school was to get a job and I was going to get a job um, uh, by, by focusing on my craft. And so I didn't think that I had to focus on my schoolwork. And, uh, and now I'm a parent and I'm like, I'm sitting there hoping my kids never ask me for my grade cards. You know, I'm, I'm hoping my son or daughter never say, daddy, how did you do in school? Um, so I would probably focus more on, on, uh, on my learning. I did very little. I didn't, I didn't do much book learning. I did a lot of life learning during that window. And I wish I had probably shifted that a little bit. And my 30 year old, 30 year old self, I would probably, um, uh, I got fired from a job in a newspaper because I was just a a little too cocky uh, for, uh, for the, for the leaders who had led me. And, um, and I, I realized that, um, uh, that, that one, one thing I, I, I've hoped that I've developed over time is a little more appreciation of humility. Um, I didn't have that in the, in the early stages of my career. And, uh, and I, so the thing I would, I would offer myself is that, you know, keep things in perspective that, that you're good doesn't mean you're, doesn't mean you're great and that you're good doesn't mean you don't have a lot to learn. And uh, I, I probably didn't appreciate all that I had to learn at that time window of my life. Mm-hmm. You shared a great example, Zig Ziglar, sitting out in the audience, scribbling notes. You're never right. too old to keep learning. Right. Crazy. So, all right. This, we're going to wrap with this one. Um, and by the way, before we wrap, I mean, this has just been an awesome conversation. I, I know I made a comment like halfway through. I, I hope this keeps going well. You, you delivered on all fronts, Don. So okay. thank Good. you. Um, what, with your success that you've had, you know, multiple time New York Times bestselling author, uh, what is the one piece of advice that you can share with with those listening and watching today 
that's led to that success? Um, I am extremely vigilant about my inner circle. Like I'm really careful about who I spend my time with, who I, um, and, and that, uh, that's probably the one piece of advice that I give. And I give it to my kids. I give it to anybody I talk to. It's just, you know, look at the circle you have around you because you'll never outperform them, right? You'll never be better than the circle you have. So uh, be really careful about the circle you have, your, have around you. Um, that's been, that, 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 that advice came to me through John Wooden 15 years ago. I use it every day. I think about who's in my circle. I think about how am I taking care of my circle. I think about how the relationships I have been blessed with um, need to be nurtured. And I think about how I don't want to give my time to people that aren't going where I'm going, right? mm-hmm. people that aren't in my circle. And, um, and so I, I would say that's probably the biggest piece of advice I'd give somebody. Well, I, I have to share this now. Um, and I, I don't think you'll mind me sharing, but just before we got on the call, um, you shared actually our very first phone call that talking about this podcast, how you take an amazing trip uh, that you you put together and that's your circle of people that you want to invest back into. So you're walking the walk and, and I I love I love that you shared that, but not only do you did you share it, but you you're acting upon it and delivering uh, really cool experiences for that circle that you're investing into. So if, if you want to share any on that trip or how that came about, I mean, to, to wrap the call here, that, that would be cool. Every year I take a group of, uh, I mean, they're guys, it's just 20, 20 to 25 guys who have been influential in my life at some stage. They've helped me. Uh, they've, they've helped me keep perspective or they've helped me in some ways understand who I could be or, or, or encourage me in ways. I picked 20 to 25 guys who've been influential in my life, high school teammates to college teammates, to college friends, to, you know, to, to business associates. And I take them away uh, for three days and we go someplace um, just for me to inter- for me to get time alone with these guys. One of the things I think we're weak as, as, as men anyway, I am is interacting uh, often. Um, uh, and so I take them away for three days. This year we went to West Point and I took them up there to, to experience what it's like um, to, to, to go to live the life of a cadet at West Point. Uh, the chairman of the department of leadership took us through for the day and spent time in a classroom with us. And, and so, uh, you know, these are, these are men that are just important to me. I, we arrange it. My wife helps me do it. And, and we take them away for a weekend where it's just an opportunity for me to grow with them and for them to get to know each other. Many of these men don't know each other except for, and so I, I, I hopefully they, their life is better because they're there that weekend, which is pretty powerful. All right, buddy. Well, I just want to to end the conversation here today, and I want to say thank you so much. I'm I'm honored, blessed to have you on the call here with me. It's been awesome. Um, I've scribbled a bunch of notes. I'm going to go back and and rewatch and and take a lot more away than just what I wrote down here today. So thank you, Brad. I appreciate you, buddy. I appreciate your friendship, and thanks for all you do. All right, Don. Take care. Awesome. Hey guys, this is Brad again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, seven technology hacks that financial professionals can use to reclaim unproductive hours every day. This is a free tool I'm gifting you on my website, bradleyjohnson.com. It's available right on the homepage and includes seven tools, apps, or other technology hacks I've uncovered in the last decade or so of consulting the top financial practices in the country to allow you to put hours back on your calendar. There's only one way to get it. Subscribe to my free updates and it's delivered to your inbox as soon as you do. Once again, it's available at bradleyjohnson.com. B-R-A-D-L-E-Y-J-O-H-N-S-O-N 
Dot.com, my gift to you for checking out the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to a few of my shows now and enjoy it, I'd appreciate you heading out to iTunes or Stitcher to rate the podcast and just let me know what you think. If you have ideas for future guests, please share them there as well. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you on the next show. The information and opinions contained herein are provided by third parties and have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed by Advisors Excel. The guest speaker is not affiliated with or sponsored by Advisors Excel for financial professional use only, not to be used with the general public or in a sales situation.